Oh my gosh! You got it. Hold your oh, ring. Are we there? Help Hold me. Am I slipping? <laughs> Go, Brandon. Oh. Hey, city fam! Merry Christmas! <laughs> Christmas season is upon us. We've been <laughs> in our series called The Upside Down, and we can't wait for Christmas Eve. Clayton, tell them about it. Yeah, Christmas Eve is going to be on Christmas Eve with services at five and six thirty p.m. We'll have uh, child care for birth or six weeks through kindergarten and uh yeah it's gonna be a lot of fun come join us so we thought the best way to get into the christmas spirit would be to read twas the night before christmas let's go twas the night before christmas and all through the house not a creature was stirring not even a mouse the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that saint nicholas soon would be there my feet are going to sleep Children were nestled, all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and my eye in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. Oh, God. Which way were you? <laughs> the third page. <laughs> Without other lawn, there rose such a clatter. I sprang from a bed, see what's the matter. Till the window I flew, hunted the flash, tore open the shutters, <laughs> threw out the sash. Uh, oh, I can't reach my water. Hey, somebody help me get my water. I can't remember the last time I flew open my sash. The moon? <laughs> my sash is flying over. Right? My <laughs> sash is open. Watch this one. The moon on the breast of the new fall of snow. <laughs> oh, that was a terrible Merry idea. Christmas, City <laughs> fan. See you Christmas Eve. See you Christmas Eve. So one of the things you learn really fast hanging upside down for that long is that your face just fills up with all this fluid and blood and everything. And so that's why my face is all puffy. I hope it doesn't look like that right now, but it definitely looked like that in that video and it kind of scared me. But thankfully, uh, no one was injured or hurt or passed out in the making of that video. So I consider that a win, you know? And so if you hadn't figured it out by now though, uh, this is a little bit different of a church, okay? We like to... Uh, sing and then laugh and then pray and then laugh and then read God's word and then laugh. I mean, it's just different, right? And uh, that's true for Christmas this year. Christmas is going to be different. I'm sure your Thanksgiving was different. Christmas is probably going to be different this year. Like I'm guessing this year, uh, there's going to be a lot of pants left in the stores or left in these online warehouses because men only need like tops this year, right? I mean, you can show up to your business meeting on video or whatever and be wearing shorts or underwear. You know, it doesn't really matter. You got business up top and party down below, right? And so I'm guessing there's just going to be a lot of pants left over this year from Christmas. It's a different year. But one thing is always true about Christmas. There's something that never changes about Christmas. Christmas shows us, even screams to us, that everything about God is upside down to us. That everything about God is upside down to us. And the theological concept for this, the idea for this is the upside down kingdom. In fact, there was a book written in 1978 called The Upside Down Kingdom. And the point of this concept, or even of this book, was to convey the way the kingdom of God challenges the prevailing social order. How the values of the kingdom stand in an inverse relationship to the values of this world. That is... 
What is highly valued at the top of one order ranks at the bottom of the other. What's highly valued at the top of one order ranks at the bottom of the other. Jesus said it like this. My kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. So my kingdom doesn't fight. It doesn't wage war. It doesn't work. It doesn't value the things the same way the kingdom of this world does. Every kingdom, every administration has a pattern. It has a power. It has a product. It has a program. It has things that it values and it doesn't value. In the kingdom of God, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, the meek, and those who mourn. In the kingdom of this world, it's blessed are the rich, those who are arrogant and boastful, those who are happy. In the kingdom of God, it's the first will be last and the last will be first and the greatest among you will be your servants. In the kingdom of God, we love and pray for our enemies. In the kingdom of this world, it's live for now. It's all about me, mine, and what I can get, what I can attain. In the kingdom of God, it's about living for eternity, the things of heaven. In the kingdom of God, poor widows are radically generous to the kingdom of God, much more so than even a rich person would be. In the kingdom of God, it's about losing your life for the sake of Jesus. But in the kingdom of the world, it's about fighting battles. It's about winning elections. In the kingdom of God, it's in weakness we are strong. In the kingdom of this world, we value strength and domination of our opponent. In the kingdom of God, the worst of sinners are embraced by the son of God. You see, the kingdom of God, the word of God, the gospel of God, Paul writes to the Corinthians, is foolishness to the people who are citizens of kingdom, the kingdom of this world, to unbelievers. It's foolishness to them. Romans 1, Paul said, we think of foolish thoughts about who God is and what he's like and how it works and how to be right with him. The kingdom of the world is right side up to us. The kingdom of God, it's often upside down. But Christmas reveals this as much as anything does in the scripture, that the kingdom of God is upside down. And my prayer through this series, the upside down, is that the Holy Spirit will enable us to see things closer to the way God sees them, that we'll begin to see salvation, success, greatness, value, and worth through the eyes of our King Jesus. And so last week we said the upside down principle is that salvation is upside down. Well, this week we're looking at the upside down principle number two, that is success is upside down in the kingdom of God. And this is where it's a great place to open up our app. You fill in the blank with these words and on all caps as we go, it's a great way to just engage and lean in and participate in our time together. And if you don't have our app, you can download it. It's called the City Church Lubbock. It's in your app store. Then click message notes and then you can follow along and you can fill in the blank with these words in all caps and the verses and the points are all there. You can even take your own notes as you go and email yourself those notes when you're done. But success is upside down in the kingdom of God. So where do we find this? Well, let's turn to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. And as you're turning there or opening our app or before we put the verses on the screen, I just want you to know as we turn to God's word, this is the word of God. This is the revelation of God to his creation. We don't have to guess about God and who he is and what he's like, how to have a relationship with him. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to come up with our own ideas, opinions, and thoughts. God has revealed himself to us in his word and ultimately through his son, Jesus. So what great news we have this morning. We get to hear from God. 
We get to speak with him and he's speaking to us. A lot of people say, I just want God to speak to me. I need a, a word from God. I need God to speak to me. I'd love to hear God speaking to me. Well, open up your Bible and lean in during our time together. And I believe you will hear God speak to you through his word because the scripture says all scriptures God breathe. It's all God breathe. This is inspired by God. So Philippians chapter two, we're starting in verse five. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He's encouraging them to stay united, to stand together as one fighting for the sake of the gospel and to not let anything come in between them. Don't let anything divide them. Don't let anything come in between you guys to divide you or to separate you or to, to, to make you oppose one another. And he says, you should have the same attitude that Christ had in verse five. Had the same attitude that Jesus had. Though he was God, Paul stops right here and says, hey, Jesus is God. We said this last week, right? John 1 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Paul is reaffirming this core truth and belief that we have as Christians, that Jesus is God. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. We'll talk about that more in just a second, what that means. Instead, watch this. He, Jesus, the son of God, gave up his divine privileges. Jesus gave up privilege. He willingly gave it up and laid it down. He gave up his divine privileges. He took a humble position of a slave. This is a Greek word for bond servant. It's someone who willingly chooses to go into service and to serve their master. He took the position of a slave, a bond servant, and was born as a human being. What Paul is also saying here is that Jesus has always existed. He was God. He was, in the words of John, he was with God in the beginning. He was God. The word was God. He's always existed. And through this birth into human form, he takes on flesh, but Jesus has always existed. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and watch this and died a criminal's death on a cross. This was the worst curse a Jewish believer, a faithful Jew could believe that could happen to you to die on a tree. The law said, cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. And that's what happened to Jesus. He died on a tree. He died on a wooden cross made from a tree. He died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him. He rose Jesus from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave and he elevated him. He ascended to heaven to the place of highest honor and gave the name that is above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying one day, every knee is going to bow. You can choose to bow your knee and confess that Jesus is Lord today if you haven't ever made that decision. Or you will be forced one day to bow and confess that yes, Jesus, you are Lord. And then you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. So you have a choice because the scripture says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We just have a choice on when that happens. And that choice has a lot of consequences. But here's what's happening in Philippians chapter two. This is what we call the incarnation. This is a big kind of theological word that just means this, the act of grace whereby Christ took our human nature into union with his divine purpose. 
Fully man, fully human, and fully divine, fully God. We've said it like this before to help you remember. Jesus was God in a bod, right? Easy way to remember it. God in a bod, fully God, fully man. And it's the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas where God took on human nature and in union with his divine purpose and this human flesh became God in a bod. That's the incarnation. It comes from the root words in the beginning, incarnate, incarnate, which means flesh, meat, meat and bones, right? It's where the Spanish idea of con carne comes from, right? I mean, that's, that's what we eat. That's what I ate last night. I had queso con carne with brisket, green chili brisket. It was amazing. And I'm hungry right now and I want, I want some more, right? My mouth is watering just thinking about that queso con carne with brisket and green chili it is amazing, right? And, and I know you're close to lunch and you're thinking the same thing. You're like, oh, man, I want some queso con carne. It's godly and holy. That's why you want it. God gave you that desire because this is a godly and holy desire that we have for queso con carne, right? It's the incarnation. I bet you'll never eat queso con carne again the same way. You'll just look at it and you're thinking, that's God in a bod right there. I mean, that's what that represents right there. It's the incarnation. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. And it tells us so much, Philippians 2, the incarnation tells us so much about the kingdom of God. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary on Philippians chapter two, he said this, most Jews of Jesus's day, including the 12 for most of his ministry, expected the Messiah to come as a conquering, reigning and highly honored deliverer. Like those Jews, if Christians were somehow by themselves to imagine a plan for the incarnation of God's son, they doubtless would expect him to be born into a prominent family and attend the finest schools. He'd be surrounded by the brightest minds and most capable helpers and live in regal splendor with countless assistants to do his bidding and satisfy his every need and want. He would have constant protection from physical danger and from destructive criticism, and he would deserve it all. But watch this, but that was not God's way. How many of you guys watched The Mandalorian? Okay, let's see hands, 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 hands everywhere. Okay, I do too, love The Mandalorian. Remember what The Mandalorian say to each other? This is the way, right? Okay, well, what we just read is not the way. It's not God's way. What we're about to read is God's way. Philippians 2, this is the way. The upside down kingdom of God, this is the way. But that was not God's way. His only begotten son was born into the humblest of families in the humblest of places. He submitted to every humiliation and indignity from his enemies and refused to defend himself. The highest of all became the lowest of all. The highest of all became the lowest of all. That's the incarnation. The highest of all became the lowest of all. So let's break this down. We're going to break down the incarnation. We're going to break down Philippians chapter 2 in these verses here. So first of all, here's what you need to see in Philippians chapter two. Jesus won by giving up. Jesus won by giving up. Make no mistake, Jesus won. When you read Philippians two, verse nine and 10, what does it say? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. God elevated him to the highest place. Jesus 
won. And the scripture tells us he's going to win. He's going to return. He's going to defeat Satan. He's going to defeat all the evil, satanic, demonic forces that set themselves up against the son of God and against his church. Jesus is going to win. So Jesus has won and he's going to win, but he won in a way that none of us could possibly understand or see coming. Jesus won, first of all, by giving up. Look in verse seven. It says, Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He gave up his position. He took the position of a slave, a, a servant. He gave up his divine privileges. He gave up his position. He gave up his power in a way. Now, none of these things were diminished. He was still God. He still had all the power in the universe. He could speak with the word and create things out of nothing or raise the dead, but he willingly suppressed it. He willingly denied it sometimes, didn't use it sometimes. He would at other times for the sake of others. But when it came to using his power or authority or position or title, he didn't ever use it to his own advantage. And that's what Paul means by, though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. These things were rightfully his, these divine privileges, this position, this power, they were rightfully his. They were all things that he deserved, but he gave them up. And he didn't use his privilege for his own advantage. Jesus wasn't concerned about his rights. And in a day, in a society, and in a country where we love our rights as citizens, and we fight for those rights and we defend those rights and we argue about those rights. Jesus gave up his willingly. He gave up privilege. He gave up his rights for the sake of others. It's not that those rights aren't true. It's not that they aren't worthy and valuable. Jesus gave up his own power, his own authority, his own privilege, his own rights for the sake of others. In fact, they tried to make him king once and he denied it. He had a throne in heaven. He traded it for a manger. He traded it for a cross. And when they tried to make him king here on earth, he denied it. He walked away. I mean, most of us think, what are you doing, Jesus? That was your opportunity. They wanted to make you king. They wanted to put you in power. You're going to have control. How else are you going to set up the kingdom of God here on earth if you don't have power, if you don't have a position, if you don't have the authority? Jesus, what are you doing? How could you walk away from this chance to be made king? He walked away from it. He didn't let it happen. Jesus won by giving up. Secondly, Jesus won by serving. He took the humble position, verse eight says, of a slave, a servant. Jesus said this, the greatest among you 
will be the servant of all. The first will be last and the last will be first. And when his disciples were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of God and who was going to sit on his right and who was going to sit on his left in the kingdom of God, Jesus was down on bent knee with a basin of water and with a towel washing his disciples, dirty, smelly feet while they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to serve. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus was on bent knee washing his disciples' feet, he washed the feet of Judas, whom he knew was going to betray him. No doubt Judas had become disillusioned with this man who was giving up positions and giving up powers and turning away from them and serving people. And now this guy's down on bent knee and he's washing our feet. This is the lowest position in the entire culture and the entire household. The person who would wash the, the guests of the house feet, that was the lowest you could go in their society, in their culture. And no doubt this had to disillusion Judas who wanted money and wealth and power and saw Jesus as a means to get it. And Jesus knew it. And even though he knew Judas would betray him, he washed his feet anyways. Knowing Peter would deny him three times that he even knew him, he washed the feet of Peter. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus won by serving. Jesus won third by dying. He died a criminal's death on a cross, verse eight says, but he rose from the grave and he was elevated to the highest place. So Jesus won, but Jesus won in a way that no one could see, that no one could understand. Jesus won by dying, by laying his life down. The Prince of Peace, as Jesus was called, was born into a world drowning in violence. The years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, oftentimes called the 400 years of silence, speaking of the, the, the absence of divine revelation from God, was anything but silent. It was a bloody, violent mess during those 400 years between the Old and New Testament. As kingdom rose up against kingdom, nation warred against nation, and the Jewish people hacked and fought their way to freedom with swords covered in blood. You see, about 200 years before Christ, the Greeks who ruled over Israel banned the practice of Judaism and slaughtered those who resisted. But the Jews wouldn't give in so easily. And led by Judas the Maccabean, literally means the hammer, zealous Jews took up swords and threw off the yoke of their Gentile overlords, massacring thousands in their wake. A few decades later, the Maccabees reclaimed their religious and political freedom and set up this kingdom through violent force. The success of the Maccabean swords would shape the way the Jewish people in Jesus's day would understand the kingdom of God. Now enter Jesus on the heels of a Maccabean revolt that led to them having a short-lived power. Now enters Jesus, the Prince of Peace who talks about establishing the, the kingdom of God, but he also talked about loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, giving your left cheek to the one who hits you on the right. I mean, even Pilate was confused when the Jews brought Jesus to him, claiming that he was a revolutionary, that he was being a nuisance. The Roman governor must have, thought, must have laughed to himself 
when Jesus talked about setting up a kingdom without fighting, every kingdom ever established had always been set up by fighting and of course winning the battle. This foolish Jew must have been out of his mind. And you can imagine why Pilate would have thought so. But it was being defeated by earthly powers by which Jesus conquered the spiritual forces of evil and set up his kingdom. Jesus won by losing. He won by losing. He won by laying down his life. And in laying down his life on the cross, he conquered sin. He died in our place for our sin. He took the wrath of God for our sin upon himself. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so that those of us who are in Christ would have the righteousness of God. We would be given the righteousness of God. We would have a right standing with God. Jesus laid down his life and he conquered our sin. And three days later, he rose again and he conquered death itself. You see, Jesus won. He set up his kingdom by changing hearts, by raising dead people to life, not by changing his position, his status, or his power in this world. Jesus won by taking up a cross, not a sword. And the Jews thought he would come on a horse charging into battle. But he chose a young donkey instead where he went to the cross. He healed the people that came to arrest him in the garden instead of fighting them. He asked God to forgive the people that were cursing him as he died. You see, the kingdom of God is not only upside down, it's inside out. Jesus is after your heart. We are obsessed with external success. But Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not concerned with outside success, external success, position, power, pledges, songs. Success is not measured or determined by changing the church's position or status or power in this world. We get obsessed with symbols and songs and pledges and positions of power, and then the world looks at the church and our obsession with buildings, money, political po power, and they're rightly confused. External success for the church has always led to idolatry, abuse, and syncretism. Idolatry in the form of worshiping money, power, position, and coming up with the worst theology ever known in order to maintain that power to maintain that position, to maintain that dependence of people upon the church. It's led to abuse, like in the Middle Ages. It's led to forcing people by sword point or gunpoint to convert to Christianity. It's led to syncretism, which is the mixing or the blending of your culture or your former false religion with Christianity, with the one true worship of the one true God. That's syncretism. It's the blending of some sort of nationalistic pride with the kingdom of God. And in our country, it goes like this, America first. That is idolatry. We are Jesus first. We are a kingdom first people. The blending of nationalistic pride with the kingdom of God is idolatry. It's syncretism. And it's evidenced 
By even in the church, we are more concerned with our own privilege and our own rights than we are with laying those things down for the sake of other people. That's not godly. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's not the kingdom of God. And so we pursue political power in our country. The church has ever since our country came into existence and Christians have been guilty of the worst sin, the most heinous sin, even in our country's history in order to maintain power. Power, external success for the church has never led to the church prospering. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The church has prospered under persecution, not power. When you study church history, you learn really quick. The church has always prospered under persecution, not power. So I, I still don't understand why Christians get so obsessed with political power. We have never once prospered with political power at any point in church history. It's always led to our demise. It's always led to idolatry and syncretism and abuse. In fact, the birth of the church in Acts happens under Roman persecution where Christians are being crucified and burned alive and thrown to the lions and the church exploded still to this day. If you were to study, where's the church? Where's Christianity spreading? Where are disciples being made and churches being planted? It's in countries where Christians are persecuted, not where Christians have power. You see, it's the upside down, inside out kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 17, in fact, there were people that were looking at the Christians and they were saying, these guys are turning the world upside down. <laughs> what? They, they were killing these people. People are dying for their faith in Jesus. And yet they were saying about these Christians, they were saying about this new church, this new religion. They are turning the world upside down. How are they doing it? Well, it wasn't with political power. It wasn't because they, they voted in a good leader. No, they were turning the world upside down with the upside down kingdom of God. Jesus is after changed hearts, raising dead people back to life. And that takes the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church turns the world upside down by preaching the gospel. Preaching changes hearts, not political power. And so the church doesn't need power to control. We need to preach to change hearts. We don't need power to control hearts. We need to preach the gospel to change hearts. You see, my prayer for you this Christmas is that you will see that the kingdom of God is upside down. Salvation's upside down. Success is upside down. Christmas is screaming. Success is upside down. It's in the upside down kingdom of God where leaders are servants, neighbors and enemies are loved. It's under the Lordship of King Jesus that humility is exalted. The first shall be last. Offenders are forgiven 70 times seven, where you kneel down to help a lady caught in adultery instead of throwing a stone, where you kneel down to help a half dead stranger that's lying in a ditch, where you invite sinners to follow Jesus before they ever believe or before they ever behave where you take up a cross, not a sword, where you lose your life in order to gain it. The way of Jesus is countercultural. It's upside down, it's inside out. Weakness is power, power is weakness and suffering leads to glory. 
And so I wanna challenge you this week to be successful in the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Well, that means giving yourself up. It means giving up rights, privileges, power, possession, whatever it takes for the sake of others. It means serving someone or some group of people. It means laying yourself down, dying to your thoughts, your dreams, your desires for the sake of someone else. Christian, be successful this week in the kingdom of God. It's this attitude of selfless giving of yourself, of your possessions, power, privilege that characterize those who belong to Jesus. Now, if I were to ask you to right now, just picture in your mind a manger, what, what do you see? Just in your mind's eye right now, just close your eyes if you need to. Just if you were to picture a manger, what would you, what would be, how would you describe it? My guess is because of the modern nativity scene, you would, you would picture a, this kind of wooden bassinet looking thing with maybe some wood and straw, some hay in it. That, that's, that's my guess. But that actually isn't a first century manger. Here, here's a picture of a first century manger. It was actually made of stone. It was a feeding trough for animals. They were dirty, they were nasty. And this is where Jesus was laid in a manger. It's a stone feeding trough for animals. Obviously not super comfortable, but you know what? They could be very protective. Being made of stone, they were very protective. And that's why expert priests who live near Bethlehem, near a hill known for raising sacrificial lambs, would put lambs in mangers. Not all the lambs just the ones they thought were without blemish, just the ones they thought were suitable for the blood sacrifices that took place twice a day, where Jews would offer sacrifices to cover their sin. These were the lambs that Bethlehem was famous for. And there was a hill there with a tower and with flocks nearby. And those were the ones that yielded the lambs for sacrifice. The priests wanted to keep the lambs without bumps and bruises. And so they would wrap them up tightly. They would swaddle them. They would wrap them in cloths and they would lie them in a manger. The manger is only mentioned in one account of Jesus' birth. It's in the book of Luke. And it makes sense because there's only one small group of people who would understand its significance. And they are the very ones who hear the words, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It was the shepherds. The shepherds of the sacrificial flock. They knew what the cloths and what the manger meant. This will be a sign to you, the angel said, and it was. It wouldn't have been a sign to many, but to them, most definitely. Luke chapter two, starting in verse eight, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The kingdom of God is upside down. It's inside out. Merry Christmas. God, we thank you for the upside down kingdom of God where you came down to us, where you descended and took on flesh and was born as a, a, a baby into the humblest of circumstances, the highest of all came to the lowest of all. And so God, we, we worship you for the upside down kingdom of God. And God, I pray that right now through the Holy Spirit's power, you would help us to see things a little bit differently than we did before, that we would see things through the upside down kingdom of God, that we would begin to see things just a little bit closer, maybe to the way you see them, that we would begin to value things that you value, God. And so God, I pray that we would hear this morning, Christmas screaming to us, success is upside down and that we would be successful this week. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that has never given their life to Jesus, that today would be their day, that they would celebrate this Christmas, the beginning of a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, as they place their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. And they confess that Jesus is Lord and they bow their knee. What a great day it would be. And so God, I pray that that would be true in this moment. It's in his name we pray. Amen.